Welcome to the very first episode of What Happens at Work, a brand new podcast from Bamboo HR. I'm Amy Frampton, host and head of marketing at Bamboo, and I'm super excited to share this journey with you. You're going to hear stories from employees as they share firsthand experiences of what really happens at work. After each story, I'll interview industry experts who will help us make sense of what happens, learn from what happens, so we can take it all back to make our own workplaces better. Let's kick it off with Mariah, a veteran in customer service, with a special story about how she and her manager dealt with an abrasive client in an unexpected way. So I worked at a previous company in the customer support and customer service department. And it was really a fascinating job because it was a high volume type focus. There was a focus particularly on quantity over quality. To me, when I was asked to forego quality and just go for quantity, it just felt difficult to me. What I saw was people emailing and getting the same responses then emailing back and being furious. Now you're dealing with folks who are angry and that just is difficult because there's no recourse for you as an employee. You know, it got to the point where I was working 50, 60 plus hours a week, seven days a week. I went one time where I went for 30 straight days without a day off. And I, I realized for my own sanity, <laughs> I needed to make a change. So Mariah found a new job in the tech space, again, working in customer service. It was immediately different from the very beginning but I don't think I really fully appreciated how different it was until I had one of those experiences that you expect to have in a customer service role where you have a client who's really angry. And I ended up with this particular customer and they called up and they were furious. And to this, I don't even remember exactly what they were so angry about, but they were so mad. And this person was using a lot of profanity. They were yelling at the top of their lungs. They were making threats. What they were saying was just, it was just vitriolic. It was just awful. And you couldn't get a word in edgewise. It is one of the few times in over 20 plus years in my life that I had to actually hang up on a customer. I think I've done that maybe three times in my entire life. I'd said, sir, we need to have a civil conversation and I want to help you. Let's take a step back and make sure that we can discuss this. And he started screaming and swearing at me again. I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to end the conversation and we can pick this up again tomorrow. And he started again. And so I did, I disconnected the call and I was just stressed. My heart was just pounding. Not just from having somebody with that amount of emotion coming at you, that'll get your adrenaline going, but also because I just hung up on a customer. And this is a startup company. And when you're in a startup company, you need every single customer you can get. And in my experience in other companies, it was like, if you had done that to a customer, it would be me that was getting in trouble. As the employee, I had to disconnect the call. And I thought, I have to get ahead of this. I've got to go talk to somebody about it. Because if this guy calls back, and I don't talk to them first, then I'm probably even more trouble. I was just sitting there thinking I could get fired for this. Are they going to be mad? So Mariah decides to get ahead of it, walking over to her manager, Ben's office, knocking on the door and waiting nervously to come in. I went in and Ben happened to be in his office and I, I asked him if I could chat with him. And so I started to explain and I got maybe, oh, I don't know, just a little bit into the explanation of what had been happening. <laughs> And he, he said, he what? He said, let's put that aside for a minute. And he said, how are you? How are you feeling? Are you okay? Because that was a hard experience. And 
that just shocked me because never in my life had I worked at a company where the founder of the company said, how are you? Are you okay? How did that affect you? I want to make sure you're okay before we deal with this other thing. And that moment right there was kind of life-changing for me. Then he said, okay, do you have his phone number? And I said, sure. And I gave him the phone number. So Ben and I are sitting there. We've, we've had a chat. He's asked me. He's made sure I'm okay. While I'm sitting right there in the office, he says, we're going to call him. And, I, and I'm thinking, oh, no. Hey, I, I didn't want to get back on the phone with this guy myself because it was a really not a great experience originally. And Ben says, we're going to call him. And so he dialed the phone number, put the guy on speaker. And he said, I understand you just had a conversation with one of my employees. And the guy started in about how awful I was and incompetent. And Ben, being Ben, listened to him. But after he listened, he said, you know what? We appreciate it. Um, at this time, we're going to go ahead and terminate our contract with you because we can't have customers who are going to treat our employees that way. And it just shocked the customer completely. There was dead silence on the phone for a minute. And the customer then asked Ben to repeat himself. And Ben repeated himself. He says, we're going to terminate our contract with you. We'll help you get your stuff out of the system. And we appreciate the business you've given us so far, but we won't have customers that are going to behave that way. And then the guy tried to apologize. As soon as the guy started to apologize, I thought, ah, here we go. The guy's going to apologize and we're going to take it. We're going to still keep him. And then he's going to call me again tomorrow and I'm going to be the brunt of that behavior again. And so as soon as he started apologizing, I thought to myself, ah, great. We're, we're going to say, okay, we forgive you. And then this guy is now going to continue to plague me for who knows how long. <laughs> uh, and the guy apologized and Ben said, I appreciate that. We'll still terminate your contract. Like I was shocked. It was such conflicting emotions for me because I almost wanted to just cry because it felt so amazing to have somebody say, no, you're more important than this one individual customer. And what they did was not right. And we're not going to tolerate it. That's not in line with our values. But then at the same time, I felt like this awful thing, like I've lost us a customer. <laughs> so I have these warring emotions going on. And, and Ben finished that phone call. And again, the very next thing he did was he turned to me and he said, you're totally good. You did the right thing. He said, are you okay? And he reassured me that he had no qualms about as he turned it and firing that customer. That pressure that I had every step to his office, it was like adding a physical five pound weight to my shoulders because I was so worried about what was going to happen and did I do the right thing and, and what was he going to think about what I did and how are we going to solve it and walking out of that office it sounds silly but physically I felt completely weightless I couldn't stop smiling I think if people walked past me I probably would look like an idiot because I was just grinning from ear to ear and from that time forward as I managed and grew the support departments and things like that. When I was working with my employees and they would have a difficult situation, I had their back a thousand percent. I had that example directly from Ben of what do I do? I didn't have to feel like I had in other jobs where you'd have a challenge come and you'd say, I don't know what to do about this. I come to work every day and I feel like I'm successful in my efforts, in my work and I feel validated and appreciated, I feel fulfilled. Mariah's story shows the power of a manager who puts their people first and creates a safe space for people to do their best work. And that brings us to today's guest. 
Dr. Tim Clark, the author of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. He's the perfect person to join me now to unpack how we can all create safer workplaces for our employees. I'd love to just get your kind of your first reactions as everyone's just heard it. My first reaction is I, I want to meet Ben and I'd like to hire him. <laughs> Excellent. Tell us more. <laughs> so he gets it. It doesn't matter where you are in a relationship. You can be the organization, you can be the customer, you could be a partner, you could be a vendor, you could be a stakeholder of any kind. It doesn't matter. What, what matters is that you observe certain terms of engagement in the way that you interact. The concept of psychological safety, it's based on respect and permission. And under no condition or circumstance do you abandon those terms of, of engagement. And so appropriately, Ben fired the customer. It's exactly what he should do. I, I will point out one thing though from the story that's very, I think, important to understand. If you're in a business that focuses on volume and scalability, then you could get sucked into a very dangerous vortex because volume naturally leads to transactional relationships. And transactional relationships naturally have a susceptibility to dehumanize. So there's danger here. There's quicksand around this story because if you're in a volume business, then it becomes transactional. And then there's that temptation to dehumanize. I love that term quicksand because it looks like it's not going to be a problem at all, right? And then you step in it <laughs> and you fall fast. So she then went on to be a manager herself. I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of that transformation that she went through and how this changed her. When the moment of truth comes for her and she faces a similar situation, she's going to remember. In psychology, we use a, a term called a vivid memory. An experience like that creates vivid memory and you don't forget that. Yeah, I think those defining moments for all of us, whether they're positive or negative, they stick with us for a really long time. So I know you've done a lot of really great work with psychological safety and in the workplace in particular. I'd love just to hear more about that work and your focus and things that people should be considering as, as they think about how they're engaging in their, in their workplaces. So psychological safety is a term that's been around, Amy, for a while, but we've consolidated, and this, this really happened during the pandemic, we need a clear definition. So I'll give you one, five words, a culture of rewarded vulnerability. A culture of rewarded vulnerability. I love that. What that means is that you can engage in vulnerable behavior, acts of vulnerability, and they'll be rewarded, not punished. The research is very clear on this. Without that culture of rewarded vulnerability, you can't be yourself. It's not possible. <laughs> Before the pandemic, there was interest in psychological safety as a concept. That has changed to demand for the condition. That's a very different thing. Take Gen Zers that are coming into the workforce today. They look at psychological safety as a term of employment. It's that critical. And if it's not there, they're going to bounce. So then what does that translate into? What it translates into is that if you're in a position where you're managing humans, then you need to have a track record of being able to create psychological safety. And if you don't have that track record, you shouldn't be managing humans. It's that critical because during the pandemic, people have lost access to connection and we've recognized how critical that is. There's also been involuntary personal disclosure. 
there are blurred lines between personal life, home life, professional life, and you can't help it for millions of people. And, and so it's upended the paradigms of, of work life that we've had before. And so now we realize that um, we've got to maintain that connection and we've got to create those conditions. And so then that brings us to another foundation principle, and that is leaders are responsible for conditions. And that's not a responsibility that you can delegate. So you're responsible for creating the conditions of rewarded vulnerability. And you talk a little bit about four stages of psychological safety. So if leaders are responsible for this, and I agree that they are, what are those four stages that they should be thinking through? So there's a pattern. It's an unmistakable pattern. It's an empirical pattern, and it's global. And the way that it works is that the first stage of psychological safety is what we call inclusion safety, which means that you feel included and accepted and you have a sense of belonging and connection with those with whom you work. And it's the foundation. And then you go to stage two, which is learner safety. Learner safety means that you feel safe in the learning process, that you can learn and engage in discovery. And then you go to stage three, which is contributor safety. This is where you contribute value. This is where you're given an opportunity to make a meaningful contribution, to make a difference. And that translates into an appropriate level of autonomy and role clarity and guidance and support. That's stage three. And then finally, the culminating stage is what we call challenger safety, stage four. Challenger safety means that you can challenge the status quo without fear of retribution, retaliation, jeopardizing your reputation, putting your career on the line. You can do it. And that behavior, that challenging behavior, will be rewarded, not punished. And that is the, the sequence in which humans want to satisfy their basic needs. It makes me wonder, what's the rarest stage? I would guess challenger, but I don't know. Tell us where are we doing well as a as a society and where are we where do we really need to to get going? So we have the largest global normative database in the world today on psychological safety and we measure it based on the four stages. Global pattern is that stage 1 inclusion safety is usually the highest and then it steps down for stage 2 learner safety. It steps up just a little bit for contributor safety because people feel what we term role-based security. They feel confident to, to at least do the job that they're expected to do. And then it drops down for stage four to the lowest level. So you're right, stage four challenger safety globally is the lowest stage. That probably makes sense because if you think about the vulnerable behavior that you're engaging in there, a lot's at stake, and people hesitate to, to challenge the status quo. It's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's also not an easy thing to hear. I mean, I think as a leader, you really have to process and maturely, <laughs> you know, to be told, hey, you know, you're doing the wrong thing here, or I have concerns, or I don't think this is right, and it's something I think we all can work on. So we've talked a lot about psychological safety. I'd love to hear you know, what is not, when people say it is not psychologically safe, you know, rather than just the reverse, I'd love some examples. It's a function of two things, respect and permission. Now, there are also misconceptions about psychological safety that we see, patterns. For example, sometimes people, 
they misconstrue it and, and they think it's a shield from accountability. So I, I have this diplomatic immunity. I can I don't I don't have to be as accountable. Sometimes people think it means being nice, but niceness can be a real problem. Niceness can turn into toxic collegiality where we spread a thin layer of nice over a thick layer of fear. And organizations do this as a mechanism to try to conceal the fact that they don't have psychological safety. So it's not that. It's not coddling. Sometimes people mis misinterpret it as coddling. Coddling means to overprotect people. Psychological safety actually gives us the terms of engagement that we need to have the tough conversations. Why? Because we maintain our terms of engagement based on respect and permission. We don't abandon those. So that allows us to have the tough conversations and we patrol the boundaries of respect and we don't get personal. Sometimes people think it means consensus decision-making. No, it doesn't mean that at all. This is where we have to make a crucial distinction between participation rights and decision rights. Everyone should have participation rights, and they should be given on day one when you go to work at any, in any organization, and they should be irrevocable. But those are not decision rights. The decision rights means who has the decision-making authority. Sometimes we get mixed up with those two things. Uh, sometimes people think psychological safety is unearned autonomy. Now you, you get to kind of go manage yourself and you don't have to be as answerable, as accountable as before. And then finally, sometimes people misinterpret it as what I term rhetorical reassurance. This is a funny thing, Amy, and maybe you've seen this over the course of the last couple of years. Leaders will call an all-hands meeting and they'll say, we're going to have a speak-up culture, by golly, and it starts now. As if you could decree it into existence with mere words. Right. When you do that as a leader, if you have not created the conditions and the culture of rewarded vulnerability, it's disingenuous of you to say that. That's not how it works. You are either culturally tone deaf and you don't understand how organizations work, or you don't care. There's a central mechanism for cultural transformation. It's simple, but it's not easy to do. The central mechanism is A, model acts of vulnerability, B, reward acts of vulnerability. That's how you transform cultures. That's how you move a culture to high levels of psychological safety. And there is no shortcut. There's no workaround. It's the only way. Part of what came out or through the pandemic was this, you know, this retention concern, the great, you know, resignation. I'd love to hear how you think about psychological safety in that sort of environment. Well, I think it's at the center of it all because the pandemic put pressure on the employer-employee relationship to an order of magnitude that we had not seen before. And so with that extra pressure and stress, people took inventory they examined their lives, their situation. A lot of people said, this is not working. I'm not thriving. In many cases, the environment is destructive. It really put under scrutiny and under the lamp the issue of culture and what the employer's stewardship and responsibility is to employees. And it goes back to stage one, really. I think what we learned is how foundational stage one is, inclusion safety. 
If you don't have that in place, if you don't feel that you are valued and appreciated, if you don't feel connected, then you're not there for the long term. You look at your relationship with your employer in a different light and you're not going to stay. So I think we have an avalanche of data that now tells us that fundamentally we need to take care of people as people. For example, stage one inclusion safety, it's human right. It's not something you earn. It's something that is owed to you by virtue of your humanity. I think what it exposed, Amy, is the fact that many organizations are not providing for that stage one inclusion safety. Tell us a little bit more about employee engagement and how psychological safety and employee engagement are really connected. So employee engagement is a very important concept, construct that we are measuring in most organizations today. I would say people need to understand that employee engagement is a consequence in large measure of psychological safety. So what I would encourage people to do is go upstream and focus on psychological safety. Psychological safety is your independent variable. It's your cause. Employee engagement is your dependent variable. It's your effect. We need to move upstream. It's impossible to, to sustain high levels of employee engagement without a threshold level of psychological safety. It's never gonna happen. In many cases, as we talk about and we work on employee engagement, we're working on symptoms. We're not working on the fundamental conditions that need to be in place to create psychological safety, which then leads to employee engagement. It's an outcome. It is an outcome. This has been so great. I think people are gonna love this. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks, Amy. Appreciate the opportunity. Big thanks to Dr. Clark for joining me. I'm really beginning to understand how more psychological safety is a key component for employee engagement, retention, connection, and growth. And as I think about the stages we talked about, inclusion, contributor, learner, and challenger, and how we can create spaces that really reward vulnerability without the shortcuts and put in the work each and every day. I'm excited to explore more ways we can lead and work together throughout this show. Thanks so much for joining us for our first episode of What Happens at Work. Check out the rest of our episodes where we unpack job searches and transitions in episode two, challenging bosses, the great resignation, the gig economy, and so much more. Big thanks to Mariah for sharing her story and to Dr. Tim Clark for his expertise. You can learn more about Tim at leaderfactor.com. Thanks to our Bamboo team, Sweetfish Media, and our awesome producer, Alana Nevins.